Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. In the 2016 film Arrival, the main character Louise Banks, played by Amy Adams, is a linguist attempting to decipher an alien language. At a crucial juncture in the film, she has an epiphany. The alien language is circular. To the aliens, concepts do not proceed from cause to effect. For them, time is not linear. Everything happens at once as a chunk. Banks poses a question to her companion. Do they think like that too? As she becomes increasingly absorbed in the alien language, Banks' sense of time begins to shift. She has visions of the future which become blurred with past and present. Beneath the sci-fi and American elitist drama of this film is an intriguing premise that's been pondered by philosophers throughout the ages. Do we need language to think? I've been hinting not so subtly at this question throughout this series, and I even spoke about it with Dr. Trevor Harley. It's one of the core ideas that inspired this whole project. So in this episode, the first of this final part, which is on the philosophy of language, I'm going to lay out this idea more fully and share some of my own conclusions. You may have your own. I hope that you do. Many others before us have pondered this question. In fact, we can go back to ancient Greece to begin this story. There are many characters, but I'm only going to introduce Plato here. Plato reasoned that there exist fundamental truths about the universe waiting to be discovered, if only we can find ways to describe them. To Plato, therefore, language provided ways of describing that which is. For Plato, the answer was simple. Language did not enable thought, it merely articulated it, making universal knowledge accessible. This is a pleasingly simple concept that aligns with much of what we have already seen throughout our exploration of the origins of language. That is, language is a tool. Immanuel Kant, the 18th century philosopher who I spoke about in episode 25 on lying, also thought the same sort of thing. He described language as a tool with which we experience the world. Then in the 19th century, the German philosopher Wilhelm von Humboldt began to associate the culture of a nation with the grammar of its native language. He wrote that language forms the fabric of thought. This eloquent idea had a sinister foreshadowing, though, of a not-too-distant future, and in that future, language and thought would feed into concepts of racial superiority and the idea that language literally separated the noble from the savage. Unfortunately, this type of flawed reasoning was not unusual during that period of colonization where nations of white Europeans would travel far and wide, seeking their place in the sun. What began as a philosophical project took a dark turn around that time, and so the question lay dormant for some time. It was during the 50s that the more serious academic inquiry began again in earnest, and this followed the work of anthropologist Franz Boas and his student Edward Zappa. Through the study of the Inuit people of Canada, Boas realised that language and culture were inextricably entwined. 
Despite the unique style of a language, its utility for the expression of concepts was a human universal. And Sapa even went further, asserting that it was precisely the uniqueness of culture that was expressed by differences in language. He stated that no two languages are ever sufficiently similar to be considered as representing the same social reality. The worlds in which different societies live are distinct worlds, not merely the same world with different labels attached. This was a bold statement, but it identified a crucial linkage between language and the social world. Sapper's student, Benjamin Lee Worf, took this concept even further through his study of Native American languages. He articulated the linguistic relativity principle, which asserted that languages differ in the way reality is conceptually represented in the minds of its speakers. In his 1956 work, Language, Thoughts and Reality, Worf wrote, quote, The world is presented in a kaleidoscope flux of impressions which has to be organised by our minds, and this means largely by the linguistic systems of our minds. We cut nature up, organise it into concepts, and describe significances as we do, largely because we are parties to an agreement to organise it in this way, an agreement that holds throughout our speech community and is codified in the patterns of our language. End quote. You may recognise the term speech community from episode 5 in this series, where we talked about semantics and how we use different dialects in the various social groups to which we belong. But is it a stretch to say that we actually think differently when we participate in different groups? Are you a different version of yourself when you speak with your parents or your colleagues or your mates? Of course you are. But are those differences superficial, or do they really say something about how we think? And if we extend this to different languages, then just how far do these differences go? This is the heart of the question. Do we need language to think? But already we're starting to see that maybe that's not even the right question to ask. Perhaps it's better to simply ask, how does language influence the way we think? This was essentially the result of the investigations of Boaz, Sapper and Worf, and it forms the basis of what is today commonly known as the Sapper-Worf hypothesis. Sapper and Worf, they never wrote on these topics together or even articulated their academic curiosity into such an explicit hypothesis. It was only in the 1950s that psychologist Robert Brown and his colleague Eric Lennenberg narrowed down these speculations into two core principles for inquiry based on Sapper and Worf's earlier work. Brown and Lennenberg presented two versions of the hypothesis, the strong and the weak. The strong version states that thought is determined by language, while the weak states that it is only influenced by it. The difference may seem subtle, but it's important. To say that language determines thought means that without language, there can be no thought at all. And this is indeed a strong proposition. The weak version of the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis it seems more plausible. So we can run a couple of simple thought experiments to clarify why this is so. When I'm struggling to find something out, I often put it to my wife. Her perspective is free of the convolutions that my mind becomes tangled in. So one day I asked her, do we need language to think? She only thought for a brief moment before quickly replying, no, because we have emotions. We don't need language to feel them. It was the perfect answer. Without realising it, she had touched upon a key point which immediately removed the strong version of the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis from the equation. When we talk about thought, 
What is it that we're actually talking about? Is it that voice inside your head, the constant monologue that narrates the movie of your life seemingly arising from nowhere? Sure, but it's also much more than that. It's everything your brain does and is capable of doing that impacts on your behavior and your perception of reality. So we can better describe thought as cognition. When we mobilize the term cognition, we unlock a range of capabilities that humans possessed beyond just that voice in our head, and these can be tested for discreetly. Some aspects of cognition require access to language like grammar, numeracy, and vocabulary. But much of cognition doesn't. Spatial awareness, memory, pattern recognition, shapes, and colors. Humans possess a range of cognitive faculties, many of which have nothing to do with language. These are tested for using so-called non-verbal or non-linguistic tests. We don't even need to call upon emotion to see that thought or cognition cannot be determined by language because much of thought is independent of it. So we can pretty easily set aside the strong hypothesis of linguistic determinism. The weak hypothesis, however, is another story, and you know I love stories. There's a Czech proverb that says, you live a new life for every new language you speak. If you know only one language, you only live once. Bilingualism is an interesting way to approach the Sapperwolf hypothesis, because here we are able to test that if people who speak more than one language actually differ in their personalities and in turn their thoughts. In one study where people were asked how they feel in different languages, one person responded, in English, my speech is very polite with a relaxed tone, always saying please and excuse me. When I speak Greek, I start talking more rapidly with a tone of anxiety and in a rude kind of way. Does this subjective report actually tell us something important about cognition? We explored metaphorical domains in one of the previous episodes of this series where we saw that different languages have different ways of describing and representing concepts. These can be simply the metaphors we use in regular conversation where the differences are intriguing but somewhat trivial. But they can also extend to how abstract concepts themselves are imagined. Things like time and space. Because we saw that English-speaking people tend to think of time as running from left to right, while Chinese speakers visualize it as running from up to down. We can see from these examples that thought is indeed influenced by language, at least how we conceptually frame certain uh, concepts. But even so, these are somewhat superficial examples that merely represent different ways of framing the same thing. This leads us to the psychologist George Lakoff's categorization of the weak version of the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis. He considers how language and thought may vary across four domains. The first is the degree and depth to which it varies. The second is whether it is absolute or dynamic. The third is whether this relationship appears in translatability. And the fourth is whether it is a function of language or a function of the mind. Unpacking these ideas briefly will further highlight the distinct areas in which language may influence thought. The first and last are self-explanatory. Language and thought are intrinsically related, but the question is to what degree and in which direction. We can turn to the development of children to understand this relationship more clearly. There is a huge wealth of uh, material that I could draw on for this uh, episode, but I'm only going to touch on a couple of key points that I've uh, uncovered, which I think are 
make these points and, and at least get you thinking, which is the whole point of this podcast. So believe me, this is not an exhaustive exploration of this topic. We can look at the Swiss developmental psychologist Jean Piaget's work. He looked very closely at how young children develop their cognitive abilities and language. We're talking, say, under the age of two years old. He went a little bit older than that, but a lot of that work, that key cognitive development occurs in those very early months and years. He described various stages of development in a still widely recognized theory. He found that children cannot completely abstract spatially or temporally beyond the here and now until they're about the age of eight. Of course, they can begin to do this at a much earlier age, but their experience at younger ages really just occurs to them in the present. It's only very gradually that their time horizon expands and they can begin to become aware of concepts like causality. As they become more abstract in their thinking, children begin to understand and problem solve, which gradually informs their perception of reality. And this can be concepts as simple as a relative time, like how long is it until something happens, or conceptually reversing time, if you could ask what came before, turning time backwards, something which an adult we, we find so simple we don't even think twice about the sequence of events that led up to something. This is very difficult for young children. It was also thought that the language development of children mirrors their cognitive development. This is a constructionist view. It's reason that as children begin to speak, they can only speak about those concepts for which they have already developed a cognitive understanding. The structural complexity of the language is also limited by their cognitive abilities. This sounds perfectly reasonable and implies that language is not independent of, but closely tied to cognitive development. Language, therefore, cannot determine thought because it requires cognition to occur. Language provides a cognitive framework to express conceptual reality in these domains, but it requires it for their expression. However, Piaget's findings were not quite this straightforward. For example, studies that came later revealed that children, really we're talking about babies, or certainly toddlers, developed temporal awareness far earlier than Piaget had first thought. Where they lack the linguistic ability to articulate these concepts, this is more of a limitation of grammatical competence than perceptual competence. They use language far more flexibly than when fully developed. Remember that all language requires to function is to be understood. And really it takes very little understanding, as anyone who has ever spoken with a non-native speaker of their language well knows. It doesn't take much to get the gist of what someone is trying to say. And this is especially evident when speaking to young children, particularly if they're your own. In the following example, Heike Behrens writes of Eva, who was a little German toddler who spontaneously recalls a game that she'd played around two weeks earlier with her siblings. The three of them had assembled their shoes. They had a little stick which they used to knock on the heels and the soles. Now, Eva was being put to bed when she spontaneously said, play shoemaker, knock, knock, make. Remember, this game occurred two weeks before she remembered it. I've observed this in my own children. Their memories are remarkably good. And while they often lack the words to describe in clear detail, we knew what they mean. They are re-experiencing something. So it's evident that their little worlds are vibrant and extend both into the past and into the future. There's something self-evident about the notion that children can only describe what they can think, because isn't that the same for all of us at every age? For instance, I have no idea how a clock works. I've no concept of how all those tiny pieces fit together and the way that they mark the constant beat of the second hand. Without access to the mechanical reality of a clock, 
there's no way for me to describe it. Even if I could observe every part and piece and watch the clockmaker assemble it, I would still be unlikely to understand how it works. Now that's just me. This knowledge, if it is ever even obtainable by my mechanically inept brain, it can only be learned by explanation. Explanation through language. So this example, it moves the card along a bit, but it doesn't really help as much as we might think. Because on the one hand, it demonstrates that, at least for me, language is a necessary element for learning. But whether I can truly grasp the concept requires something of my cognitive capacity. If I don't have that faculty, that mechanical cognition, whatever it takes to understand how a bloody clock works, then no amount of explaining in any language will ever be enough. The wiring just isn't there for me to grasp the workings of the clock. So language, therefore, is an element of learning and cognition, but it is certainly not the only element or even the essential element. There are many other mediums, too, which transmit knowledge in this way, depending on how we define it. An example that I often come back to is music. I've been playing the guitar for around 25 years, but I can't read musical notation. I can learn a song by ear, I can hear the rhythm and beat of the song, I can seek out its groove and attempt to replicate it. Not very well, mind you. This ability exists independent of language. Indeed, music seems to exist in a dimension entirely unique from it, just as many other forms of art and expression also do. Science often struggles to explain this world of subjective experience. It's untestable and unfalsifiable. Philosophy even struggles to assemble our inner worlds into logical presuppositions that can be tested against reason. This is the field of phenomenology, which describes our attempts. Psychology, it's more receptive to this subjective, uh, qualitative feel, even if it makes no claim as to the meaning of those experiences. But as this is my podcast, and I can approach the topic from any angle that I want, I want to briefly draw a distinction between language and what we might label as intuition. Music, to me, falls into this category. Setting aside the lyrics for a moment, just think of the melody of a song. We can communicate so much through that. It's a a mood, a feeling, a memory. They're all conjured from deep within our consciousness. And all of this takes place without words. But it doesn't stop there. The phenomenon of subjective experience moves us. Think about the feeling you get when you watch a sunset, a child play, or see laughter on your loved one's face. Emotions are great drivers of experience. And these seem to pass through our conscious minds without form. If we hold up a figurative hand to interrupt them, to articulate them with language, they quickly slip from our grasp. They're seemingly indescribable by most of us. I guess poetry is maybe the way that we can take those concepts and translate them into language. So when my wife said to me that we don't need language to think because we feel, she tapped into this universe of cognition which exists beyond language. We're left with this kind of unsatisfying conclusion that language is really just about communication. But does everything that happens between our ears and in our hearts exist beyond language only until we need to translate it into that form that we can share with others? In the 1980s, the Harvard researchers Dan Slobin and Ruth Berman conducted a study to understand the way children perceive time in different languages. The task was simple. The children were presented with a story. It's titled, Frog, Where Are You? I've linked to it in the show notes. 
This story, it's a picture book. It consists of 24 pictures. There's no words. And the children were asked to describe what was happening in the story. The children that participated in the study spoke five different languages. There was, I think, Hebrew and English, obviously, German. Uh, I can't remember the others. But since then, this study has been quite foundational. I think it's been used by something like 150 different languages now. What it garnered was an insight not into just the narrow cognitive element of uh, time perception that the researchers originally set out to understand, but it explained or offered an insight into more fundamental ideas about how language and thought are related, is what they ultimately found was that the narrative accounts that these children created by observing these pictures differed quite a lot between the different languages that they used. So unwittingly, the researchers had stumbled upon maybe another way into the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis. The way that different languages conceptualize characters, events, causation, and agency offered a window into how cultural differences emerge through language and how these combine to create identity in developing children. The linguist and scholar Michael Bamberg, who looked at this work very closely and contributed to a later textbook that was written about it, he wrote, quote, The cognitive schemata are the outcome of communicative practices rather than their prerequisites. End of quote. Through communication, children develop a social identity. This is a distinctly cognitive aspect of what it is to be human. Dan Slobin, author of that original study, concluded that when a child acquires their native language, they learn particular ways of thinking for speaking. This in turn implies that culture and language construct each other in ongoing processes of speaking and engaging cultural practices. This notion of turning thoughts from wherever they might arise into speech connects our inner and outer worlds and constructs complex human language as a tool. This is a concept which aligns with much of what we discovered earlier in this series. But it does not stand alone as a mechanical interface with the world. Language is bound up with our social world. We are not robots. So, yet again, we see culture appear in this exploration of language, this time in how it influences the way language and thought interact. The argument for the weak version of the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis now leads us to a place where language concentrates our focus on some concepts over others, primarily those which involve our social worlds and our ethical and moral realities. So to conclude this episode, we'll briefly explore this idea, which was also considered by the philosopher Charles Taylor. Taylor's analysis determined that the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis can easily be refuted when considering representations of observable reality. That is, language has little influence over thought when it is used to describe the tangible world which we see in the here and now. From a semiotic perspective, Language that describes signs is sophisticated compared to other animals, but it really just describes reality as it appears to us. But it becomes more significant when we think of abstracted concepts such as our social and ethical realities. Here, it becomes more difficult to articulate cultural aspects of identity without first employing language. This is born out of our speech communities and the norms and values we learn and develop through our lived experience. We develop a social character or essence which language offers us access to. This is evident in how we alter our language when conversing in different groups. And it may become even more obvious when we consider the translatability of language or its lack thereof. 
And we see this in Slobin's Frog Story project, where different interpretations of the images reflect different nuance in those different language cultures. Those untranslatable words offer a tempting insight into this idea, but for me, that, that concept is kind of illusory. Just because a word does not exist in English does not mean we cannot conceive of its meaning. Quite the opposite. When I give you the following examples, they won't baffle you. They're just amusing ways of describing experiences which we are all familiar with. They do not provide access to some aspect of humanity which did not exist without them. Like schadenfreude, this is a German word which means to find humour in another's misfortune. Another example is the Spanish phrase, pena ajena, which represents the idea of being embarrassed for someone. I can explain both of these concepts to you with just a few words of English, so they don't really say much about how we think, other than that some languages seem to articulate certain concepts more than others, which perhaps speaks more to their cultural values. This, then, is the insight translatability offers into language and thought, and Charles Taylor's notion that language only differs in our social realities. Language offers us access to a particular way of being. Language informs our ontology. The sociologist and linguist Joshua Fishman had a good name for this, Warfianism of the Third Kind. But while this might be a satisfying conclusion, it also has limits for our understanding of the relationship between language and thought. Let's return to bilingualism briefly. Studies have been conducted where people complete personality tests in their different tongues. If we do truly access different social worlds when we express ourselves through language, then it's not unreasonable to think we'd be different versions of ourself. These studies show that this is not the case. Whether people take a personality test in German or English or Japanese, the big five personality traits are conserved. How people feel and behave may vary, just as it does when we move between speech communities. But who we are and how we think remains constant. So it would seem, language has very little influence on thought. I find this conclusion kind of disappointing. I really thought it was going to be the other way around. But despite its nuance and variation, language does aid our understanding and transmission of our social realities, but it does not determine them, and it seems it has very little influence on them. So perhaps the rules of language are universal after all. Perhaps Noam Chomsky was right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.